If you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15. preaching on a subject the Lord's been dealing with me about for a little while and has directed me to minister on this morning. Isaiah 57 and verse 15 says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite, or we might say broken or crushed, and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Amen. This verse, if you uh, take the time later to consider the context, is speaking of God's desire for His people who have gone astray to return to Him, to humble themselves, to be broken before Him. And it begins with a declaration to remind the people of just who their God is when it says that He is the high and lofty one. He is majestic. He inhabits eternity and His name is holy. And I want to particularly draw your attention to that statement that says that the Lord inhabits or dwells in or lives in eternity. The Oxford Dictionary defines eternity as a state to which time has no application or timelessness. And when you and I try to comprehend or explain eternity, we normally use words and expressions that describe a really long time. We talk about thousands of years, thousands and thousands of years, which to us are just words. We don't really even comprehend what it means to have a thousand years. But the reality is you cannot use measurements of time to describe something that simply doesn't have time. You can't measure something that is immeasurable. It's a wonderful old hymn that many of us know called Amazing Grace that includes in its lyrics in the last verse this statement, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. I was thinking about this, I thought, who's actually going to be counting? Who's going to be counting? Who's knocking off the calendar? A big fat sharpie and they're just crossing off one month after another. How do you count in eternity? And I'm preaching this morning on that subject, the subject of eternity. Eternity or the idea of being eternal is very hard for us to, to comprehend. God who exists in eternity created the earth. In the early stages of the creation week, he gave us the sun and the moon, which are directly connected to how we measure years months, days, and even hours. And we exist within that creation. We are governed and ruled by time. For us to try to grasp eternity is a little bit like a goldfish in a bowl on a kitchen bench trying to comprehend the Pacific Ocean. It's, it's beyond our abilities because everything about us is limited. But our struggle to comprehend eternity must never reduce our realization or our recognition of how important eternity is. Why does eternity matter? Why is it an important subject? Because when this life is finished, when these corrupt bodies are placed in a grave, we do not cease to be conscious. We do not simply black out, never to be illuminated again, 
but rather we transfer or we transition from time to timelessness. The limits of the clock and the calendar are gone, but our consciousness is still very much awake. John chapter 3, very well-known passage of Scripture, in verse 3 says, Jesus answered and said unto him, him being Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus's response was, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus is limited by time in his understanding. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. From this passage, it is clear that the experience of being born again, being born of water and spirit, is not negotiable. It's not up for discussion or debate if we want to see, to perceive or to know or to enter, to come into the kingdom of God. Why does it matter that we come into the kingdom of God? Because that kingdom is an everlasting or eternal kingdom. The 145th Psalm and the 13th verse says, Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. Peter wrote in Second Peter 1 and verse 11, For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So when you are born again of water and spirit, we baptized young Joel this morning as a part of that obedience to that scripture. He was already filled with the spirit last Sunday morning. When you are born again, you become a part of a kingdom that is everlasting or eternal that speaks to us of something so much more than this natural life. So much more than the hours and the minutes and the seconds that we count Every day when we're waiting to get out of our workplace or school or, or waiting for something we don't want to have to wait for it, we are dictated to by time, but we already are in a kingdom because the kingdom of God is not a location. It is not a postcode. It is not defined by boundaries of man-made borders or oceans that surround continents, but it is a place wherever he is your king, you are in his kingdom. So it does not matter what postcode you're in. If you are obedient to the word of God and walking with God, then he is your king and you are in his kingdom and you are already in that kingdom which is eternal. Now I know that these bodies are not eternal. We're getting old. Nobody today is younger than they were yesterday. We're all getting older. You can't fight that. You can do what you want to try to improve quality and health and you should do all those things. But the scripture says it is appointed unto man once to die. That is an appointment that you cannot avoid. So what happens when we die? I want to consider this from the position of understanding that there was a difference between what happened when people died before Calvary and after Calvary. Every era of time every period throughout history people were saved by their obedience to whatever instructions God gave them Abraham who was the father of those who have faith was saved because he did what God asked him to do 
Moses was saved because God did him did what he did what God asked him to do. The Israelites were saved because they obeyed the law, if they obeyed the law that Moses gave them from God. We are saved today by grace through faith. Faith produces obedience. That young man was baptized this morning because he obeyed what the scripture said. But all of us, whether we're talking about Old Testament believers or New Testament believers, are dependent completely upon the blood of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, when they obeyed God, they were looking ahead to the power of the cross. In the New Testament, we are looking back to the power of the cross. We are on this side, they are on the other, but the cross is where our salvation is provided for. And it is obedience by faith in that provision. A lot of those Old Testament saints didn't really understand what Calvary was going to be. They were offering animal sacrifices out of obedience. And when it got to Calvary, the shed blood of Jesus Christ together with his burial and resurrection was powerful enough to retrospectively take away all their sin. And also powerful enough to take care of our sin 2,000 years later. Amen. Amen. So where, when people in the Old Testament died, where were their souls before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? They couldn't go to heaven. Their sins hadn't been paid for yet. To understand this without getting off track and bogged down this morning, the scriptures we have in English will sometimes use a word that from the original languages there are multiple words. A very easy example of that is the word love. We have one word in English. We use the same word love for our spouse, for our favorite sports team, for our favorite food, for our pets, for our car, for anything that we feel uh, a great appreciation for or we really, really like to have. We'll say, well, you know, I love pizza. Or, or if you're one of those really healthy people, you might love kale. We can pray for you afterwards. But we have the one word that we use across the board. Whereas in Greek, they had, I think, four, maybe even five different words that were in you. And so context helped. And so that, that gives, that makes the point that I'm trying to make. And so we have that same situation when we use the word hell. In English, you read your Bible, the word hell is used in a lot of places, but it is translated from different words in the original language. And so we have to look at those words in the context to get what it's talking about. In the Old Testament, there is a Hebrew word, Sheol. In English, it would be spelt S-H-E-O-L. And that corresponds to a Greek word in the New Testament, Hades, H-A-D-E-S, which both refer to the grave. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, so if I lose anybody, please come and see me afterwards. When you and I think of the grave... We think of the literal burial place. When we say the word grave, we have a mindset of a cemetery, a funeral home, a mausoleum perhaps. We think of the physical location. When the scripture uses that word hell, it includes that concept, but it also refers to the place where souls are conscious waiting for their eternal destiny. Am I making this up? Luke chapter 16. Starting at verse 19, it says, There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple 
That's, we're told that information, but not because we want to know that his favorite color was purple, but purple was the color of the, the wealthy and the elite. It was expensive. He was clothed in purple and fine linen and fed sumptuously every day. He, he ate the best of everything every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. If two people that whose circumstances could not be more opposite in the natural. But in verse 22, it says, It came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, he lifts up his eyes being in torments and sees Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And let me stop for just a second. The expression Abraham's bosom is a Jewish idea. Abraham was their father both spiritually and naturally. And so they considered that the promises that had come to Israel through Abraham meant that they would go to be where Abraham was. And so they used that to describe that when they died, they would go to be in the fulfillment of those promises. Okay, so that's what it's, it's not a, a strange idea. We hopefully understand that a little bit more. And in verse 24, speaking of Lazarus, it says, sorry, speaking of the rich man, it says, and he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. Let me pause there for two seconds and say that wasn't a reward situation for their natural life. It wasn't that because he was rich he went to torment, and because he was poor he went to heaven. That was the case. We'd all be running out and getting rid of our houses and cars and having our bank accounts and doing everything we could. Obviously, there was more to the backstory than that. But Abraham makes that point. In verse 26, he said, And beside all of this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from where you are, or from here to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. I'm pretty sure there was only going to be one-way traffic that was interested in that situation. A couple of things I want us to notice about this passage of Scripture. Firstly, they were actual people. It's not a parable. Sometimes in the Scripture, Jesus used stories to communicate a principle. But when people were named, they were actual people. It doesn't just say a certain man. It says Lazarus. It gives us his identity. They both died physically, and yet they experienced consciousness after death. One was in a place of comfort that we've already touched on called Abraham's bosom. One was in a terrible place of torment. And while there seems to be some communication that was possible, they were separated. Jesus told this story, gave this account before Calvary. So this situation is existing before he was crucified. You need to keep that in mind. So when Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose again, the souls that had been obedient to the Lord, that were waiting for his sacrifice, like Abraham and Lazarus, went to be in the presence of the Lord. The wicked remain where the rich man was. He's obviously not going into the presence of the Lord. And so in the New Testament, on this side of the cross where we are, when the righteous die... Their souls are immediately in the presence of the Lord. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. Therefore, Paul writing said, We are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. He said, Well, I'm in this life. I'm not in God's presence. He said, For we walk by faith, not by sight. He said, We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Paul understood that when his natural life came to its conclusion, that his soul would go to be in the presence of Jesus instantly. Amen. The wicked in the New Testament, when they die, are still in the place where the rich man is. Amen. The next major event that we wait for as the church, and I'm not going to get into prophecy this morning because we could get off on a sidetrack and that's not the main focus of my message. But the next major event that we wait for as the church of God is what is sometimes called the rapture or the catching away of the saints. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 51 and 52 says behold i show you a mystery we shall not all sleep that means die it doesn't mean have a nap we shall not all sleep but shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye instantly at the last trump for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed Now, we're going to come back to that in a little while, so just mentally put a bookmark there. But if you are born again of water and spirit, then you are already a part of the everlasting kingdom of God. And when Jesus comes back, we will transition from being in the kingdom of God here into the eternal kingdom of God there. It's gone very quiet. I hope I'm not losing anybody. I hope we're just listening. That's all right. Amen. And when the church is taken out of the earth. It will begin the fulfillment of a series of prophetic events. Now, there are some different opinions about the order. Uh, You want to have a conversation about that? You can have a conversation about that. Uh, Wasn't what I was planning on saying, but it works. But I believe that the church is going out of the earth before those prophetic events events begin to happen because those prophetic events are part of the judgment of God and we are saved from judgment through the sacrifice of the cross and now these events which we're not getting into will conclude with sinful humanity standing before the judgment seat of God revelation chapter 20 and verse 11 John wrote, I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great. It's not talking about physical stature. It's talking about of every walk of life. Stand before God and the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to to their works or their actions and the sea gave up the dead which were in it and death and hell that word hell there's talking about the grave we talked about that before delivered up the dead which were in them and they were judged every man according to their works and death and hell or death and the grave were cast into the lake of fire this is the second death 
And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Here we see a reference to something called the lake of fire. This is what we are usually referring to when we use the word hell. We're not normally talking about the grave. We're talking about a place of incredible torment and suffering that is perpetual. On the next page, possibly in your Bible, in chapter 21 of Revelation and verse 8, it says, But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. We're talking about eternal death. We're not talking about natural death. It is appointed under man once to die. We go into the grave. Then there is an eternal destiny that follows that, depending on what happens in this life. Mark 9. I'm going to use a little bit of scripture, then we're going to break it down a little bit. Mark 9 and 43 says, If thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It's figurative language. It is better for thee to go to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off, for it is better for thee to enter halt or lame into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. This passage has very graphic warnings about not participating in sin. It talks about our hands, our feet, our eyes, where we go, what we do, what we fill our hearts and minds with. This time in this passage, the word hell is translated from the Greek word Gehenna which is a reference to a location outside, a literal location outside of the city of Jerusalem. This place had a terrible, terrible reputation throughout Israel's history. At one point, or at least possibly more than one point in their history, it was a place when they had turned their back on God and were worshipping idols where they offered their children as live sacrifices to false gods. So it was a terrible thing. It was something that when you read the Old Testament, you could almost argue that it was possibly one of the things that angered God more than anything else that they did wrong. Was they would offer that the kids are upstairs, so the the idol Molech was said to be have giant iron hands that they would heat incredibly, and they would put their children on those hands and offer them in sacrifice in this place, and so it had an identity with something that God despised with everything you might say that was in him. It was also a place that even in an ongoing way, it was like their rubbish dump, where everything from dead animal carcasses to all the filth you can imagine from the city was taken and dumped there and burned. And so there was any city of any size is constantly producing rubbish. You put your bins out every week. Sometimes bin day doesn't come around fast enough. There's constantly rubbish being added and, and filth and dead animals and things being, and the things were being burnt and it was just a, it was, it painted a graphic picture 
of something that was horrific, but also continuous. It was continuous. It did not stop. And this passage we read from Mark chapter 9 repeatedly warns us about fires that do not go out. It repeats that statement multiple times in just a few verses, and it talks about a worm that does not die. And there are various opinions about what that means, but it seems one suggestion is that in that place of suffering, your conscience will never, ever go away. There will be that gnawing reminder that you should have obeyed God. That gnawing reminder that you should have responded to the gospel, that you should have forgiven, that you should have changed, that you should have repented, that you should have walked away from things or people or situations and that will never, ever go away. We're talking about eternity, an idea that is so hard for us to comprehend, but to even try to grasp the idea of eternal suffering should be terrifying to us. This idea of a lake of fire, of suffering that cannot be comprehended, that will never end, is so confronting for humanity that we would rather only think about heaven when we think about eternity. Because heaven's a lot more appealing. But both heaven and hell are just as real and just as eternal as each other. Modern Christianity to its discredit, has all but removed the idea of a place of torment from its language and teaching because of how confronting it is. Because it's unpalatable, because it, in a world, in a society where everybody's offended and outraged about everything, to suggest that there might be such a horrific place is such a confronting thing. And to be honest, sometimes Christians almost feel embarrassed to talk about hell. But it's real. Some supposed church leaders, I use the word supposed, have written about their view on hell looking to soften the blow, looking to reduce it to some sort of discomfort or inconvenience. You know, it's like, well, you didn't get the prize, but you just missed out on the prize. There's no consequence. There have been a collection of unbiblical doctrines throughout the last 2,000 years, possibly even more than that, about hell. And about eternity and all of them are basically designed to try to make the concept more acceptable in the minds of people. Some of them, but not all of them, include the idea of annihilationism. Doctrine believes that if you're not saved, you seem to get erased. You cease to exist. And then you make it to heaven or you just get blotted out. So if you miss out on the reward, it doesn't actually cost you anything. The idea of universalism, this is the idea that even if there is some suffering, eventually everybody gets to heaven. Origen, who was falsely called an early church father, believed this doctrine, even to the point of Satan eventually being saved. He believed that because Satan had a choice to rebel, he could also have a choice to repent. Unfortunately, that's not biblical. His destiny is already set. The idea of purgatory, another idea that suffering will be used as a period of cleansing before being promoted to heaven. None of these ideas are supported by the Scriptures. None of them. I I understand the desire to find a way to repackage hell. It's not an easy product to market. 
I understand the, the, the hope that we try to make it not as graphically horrific, but we cannot modify it to soothe our own concerns. It can't happen. Almost all great revivals in church history included in their foundation a response to future events, wanting to be saved from judgment. Famous messages by people that didn't necessarily even have full biblical truth, such as sinners in the hands of an angry God. It was people that were terrified of being lost that ran to altars to cry out for the grace and the mercy of God. Jonah, when he went to Nineveh, his message was that judgment was coming, that God was going to destroy that whole city because of their wickedness, and the city fell on its knees and repented. When John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way of the Lord, his message was repent. Repent. It wasn't make some modifications and adjustments to your life or update your spiritual resume. It was repent. It was repent. People make absurd statements about not wanting to believe in a God who could send people to hell. That is, forgive me if I'm blunt, but that is some of the dumbest thing you could ever say. That's like denying the sun exists because you got sunburned one day. Because God doesn't fit into a model or a mold or a description that they're comfortable with. Therefore, they reject his existence. How arrogantly human. (laughs) How arrogantly human. To deny the existence of someone or something because it doesn't fit within your preferences is madness. You see, if we understand that the gospel is the good news... That's what gospel means. The good news, its goodness is so much greater when we understand what it saves us from. When we realize where we were headed, that good news becomes excellent news. It's better than just good. It's amazing news. Amen. And we cannot dilute the gospel to just being a better choice for your future. As if we're trying to choose who manages our superannuation. That's how some people have diluted it down. It's, it's a pleasant option to choose the gospel. We have to remember that no doctrine stands alone or by itself. We remove hell, entire foundation of grace, salvation, and Calvary changes. An eternity or an eternal option that is without God is necessary for us to have a free will. But there is another alternative is necessary if we really have a free will. You may not have ever thought about it, but to remove the idea or the doctrine of hell is to change the identity of God. Because those who argue that a loving God would not allow anyone to go to hell must overlook the fact that God is holy. And if sin is allowed to enter his eternal presence, then he is no longer holy. And heaven is no longer heaven. It's just another version of what we have here. Amen. Eternity and hell is the reason for evangelism. We need to understand what it means to be lost and then to be found. You know, when we worship God, and please do not misunderstand me, 
I, I do not believe that every single service that we should be biting the ceiling, running the aisles and exhausting ourselves. But when our hearts are involved in worship, when we take that step a little bit deeper and realize that he didn't just save us from the power of sin in this life, but he saved us from hell. He saved us from an eternity that is not just devoid of his presence, but is full of suffering and torment that is on continuous repeat again and again and again and again. And so when we come into this house and we worship God, and we know I got my wife to get me this tambourine from upstairs, and the Bible says in Exodus, I think it's about chapter 15, that when the Red Sea closed over the Egyptian army, that a woman who was at moderate estimates in her early 90s, Miriam was probably 93, 94 years of age. And the Bible says that that old lady got a timbrel. She got one of these things and she began to dance and she began to worship. And she began to say, we've been saved. And all the women of Israel came out behind her dancing and worshiping. I wonder this morning if we could see Pharaoh if we could see slavery, if we could see where he saved us from. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. I'm not much of a dancer, but if I can't keep up with a 93-year-old woman, I'm in trouble. I'm grateful for what God's done in my life in the present. His goodness and His blessings upon my life are immeasurable. But it's not about this life. It's not about this life. It's about eternity. It's about eternity. It's about what's coming. When you view life with eternity in mind, it helps you to keep perspective. Our flesh wants us to see things in the present as huge. And eternity is very small and very far away. But Paul wrote to the Romans in 8 and 18, and he said, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. I want to challenge you this morning, whatever you're going through, look to eternity. Whatever somebody's done to you, look to eternity. However they made you feel, look to eternity. Whatever questions you have that don't have answers, look to eternity. You become obsessed with the present. You'll fail God. Because everything is about right now, not about right then. We have to trust God with the present. Because if we don't, it will impact our eternity. We have to be willing to forgive, to release, to have faith when we haven't got an answer because of eternity. Because of eternity. Because nothing else matters except eternity. We get hung up on what he does for us in this life. But you know, not everybody that serves God in this life has it as good as you and me. 
Read the second part of Hebrews chapter 11. There's a whole bunch of people with incredible faith who gave their very lives, who were hunted like animals, who were treated like the off-scaring of society, but their minds were set on eternity. When Paul, whether he actually died or he just passed out after they'd stoned him, when he creakily got up off the ground and every part of his body was aching and all of his scars were screaming, the reason he got up and went on and continued to preach the gospel was because he was looking at eternity. He could have said, forget this, I'm going to go make tents. I'm going to go back to my profession. I'm going to go make some money, get myself a wife and a house and have a family and leave this madness behind. But he said, I know there's a crown laid up for me. And he considered it, you know, those apostles in the book of Acts, they were weirdos. They thought it was an honor to suffer for God. I don't want to be harsh, but I don't think there's a one of us in this building that's come even close to going through what they went through in the book of Acts. None of us have been put into prison for the gospel. None of us have been whipped or beaten. Oh, although you, you read Paul's resume, the things that he went through. You can only do that when you look to eternity. We go through a little bump in the road in this present life and it becomes so big, we become overwhelmed and we take our eyes off what it's all about. I want to speak something I feel like God laid on my heart this morning. Sometimes you can busy yourself trying to do the things for God because you don't want to deal with the things that God is talking to you about. Because you're not ready or not, well, ready is the wrong word. It really comes down to willingness. We're not willing to allow God to bring release of something that he wants. And so we think, well, I'll just, I'll put that away in a compartment somewhere and I'll just be busy doing things and that'll be okay. I want you to understand something. If you've got something in your life that God is dealing with you about, you cannot minister effectively because you can't separate that and then minister with liberty. Steve, come here for a sec, if you would, please. I'll pick on Steve because he's my friend. God gave us these hands for a lot of things. One of them is to serve one another. Now, so Steve's, Steve's my brother. I can say, praise the Lord, Steve. God bless you. I can take that hand and I can put it around his shoulder and say, it's going to be okay, Steve. You're going to be all right. I can take that hand, I can lay it on his head, and I can pray for him when he's struggling, when he's sick, when he needs healing in his body. If he's doing it tough, I can take that hand and I can put it in my pocket and maybe there might be moths, but maybe there's $10 there to try to help a brother out. But if you're holding on to something, that God is saying, let that go. What happens when I go to minister to Steve with this instead of that? Wonder why I'm frustrated. Come on, Steve. And Steve's like, what's he beating me up for? I think I'm trying to help him, but instead I've got a closed hand because you can't, you can't hold on to things that God wants to take and expect to be able to be unhindered by that. Thanks, Steve. Every part of your walk with God affects every other part. So if you've got something internal that God's Spirit has been knocking on the door of your heart about repeatedly, you just think, well, I, I'm not ready to deal with that yet. I'm just going to go and minister to people. You're clubbing people. A closed hand 
cannot minister. And if you're holding on to things that God is wanting you to release, your hand and your heart are closed. Encourage you during the week this week, if you find that a bit confronting, take the time to read the first epistle of John. See what God requires of us when it comes to loving our brethren, all of our brethren. Brother Glass used to say all the time, he said there are going to be more people go to hell over not loving their brethren than anything else in the kingdom of God. Here's the thing. God knew who your brethren would be when he had John write those words. You can't say, well, John wrote those 2,000 years ago. He doesn't know who I go to church with. God did. The Spirit of God moved on John. John put pen to paper or whatever his writing implement was. He wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost and God could see this day, 2,000 years later. We're preaching about eternity this morning. Hell is very, very real. It's not pleasant. It's offensive. It's confronting. But it's real. And when you think about rolling the dice with your soul, You won't just pay consequences in this life. They're eternal. They're eternal. But I thank God this morning that we are not left without hope. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Paul again writing. said, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. said, I don't want you to fail to understand. Concerning them which are asleep. He's talking about people that are dead. People that have passed away. He said that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. He said you should not be like people that don't have hope. Don't be like that. He said, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep, those that are dead in Jesus, will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain, and I'm believing that's at least some of us here this morning, unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep or those that are dead. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Jesus is coming back. I'll say it again. Jesus is coming back. There's going to be a shout, the Bible says. Those that have died in the faith will come out of their graves. It doesn't matter how long they've been there. It doesn't matter if somebody's moved that dirt from one place to another. They're going to come out of their graves. The dead in Christ shall rise first. And then those of us, as they begin to come out of their graves, who are still alive, the Bible says, will join them in the clouds. We will meet the Lord and we will be with Him forever. And then verse 18 says, Comfort one another. That word comfort is the Greek word parakleo, which is like parakletos, which is the comforter, which means somebody who comes alongside somebody else. That means that you ought to take your open hand, wrap it around a brother or sister and say, come on, Jesus is coming back. 
We can do this. We can hang on. Let's look to eternity. I know right now your heart is overwhelmed, but let's comfort one another with these words. You may cry a lot of tears in this life, but on the other side, there's no more crying. You may live with sickness and pain if Jesus doesn't heal you, and if he doesn't, just trust him. But over there, you'll have a new body. John chapter 14, and I'm nearly done if I could have the musicians, please. John 14, starting at verse 1, says, Let not your heart be troubled. You know, if you read the end of John chapter 13, because it's always good sometimes just to pull that chapter break out and read through. The end of chapter 13, Jesus is talking to his disciples about going somewhere that they can't follow him. He said, I'm going somewhere you can't follow me. And they're, they're trying to work that out. Peter, I love Peter. Peter gives me hope. Peter says, Lord, wherever you go, I'll go all the way to the grave. And we know what happened afterwards. And the Lord said, Peter, before the cock crows, you'll deny me thrice. And they're all saying, Lord, why, why are you going? And we can't follow. And the Lord's saying all this stuff. And Jesus is saying, I'm going. You can't come. He said, but while you're waiting for me to come back, he said, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. And he said, it's by this that all men will know that you're my disciples. And then into John 14 and 1, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I've taught on that before. It's not talking about two different people. It's talking about what was achieved through his humanity. And verse 2 says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'd go to prepare a place. Have you ever thought that God might put the person you struggle with in church in the house next door? That's, just, that's not Bible, that's just a thought. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again receive you unto myself that where I am there you may be also and then Revelation chapter 21 in verse 1 John said I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea and I John saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. Whatever you're going through right now, I want you to read verse 4 with me. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are past. There are people that talk to me about how coming to this house is their refuge. They don't necessarily have a great environment at home and haven't had a great week. And coming here is what they live for. We come in here. I understand that. But when we get there, it's not just a couple of hours on a Sunday morning. It's forever. And he sat, he that sat, verse 5, he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega. You want to know who that is? Go back to the first chapter. It's Jesus Christ. The beginning and the end. And I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God. And he shall be my 
son. Stand with me if you would this morning. I have a few questions to ask you as we open this altar today. Where will you spend eternity? There's only two choices. They both last forever and ever and ever. But you've been given the power to choose. You may not be able to choose the best of this life. Life may have, as some people say, dealt you a bad hand. But you can choose where you will spend a turn. You can be like Lazarus, a beggar covered in sores, where the dogs would lick his sores. But in a moment, as he went from this life into the next, he's in a place where all of that's just a distant memory. Have you been born again of the water and the Spirit? Have you been baptized in Jesus' name? Have you been filled with the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues? And is there something in your hand this morning that you need to release? To open your hands and say, God, I don't want to have fists. I want to have hands that will minister and will serve. These altars are open as our musicians lead us this morning. Eternity is why we're here. I love this church family, the most precious people in the world to me, even more than much of my natural family. But I'm here for eternity. I'm here because he's coming back. There's no offense. There's no heartache. There's no valley. There's no mountain. There's no struggle. There's nothing that can keep us from making it if we'll look to him. Set your eyes on eternity this morning. If your heart is overwhelmed this morning, come to this altar and tell him that. Say, God, I'm having trouble lifting up my head. I'm having trouble looking to you, God. You're my glory, the scripture says. And the lifter of my head. Lift our heads up this morning, God. Help us to look to you. Say, God, I can make it. He's coming back for those that look for Him. He's coming back for those that have obeyed His Word. He's coming back for those that walk in righteousness and holiness, that will forgive as He's forgiven them, that will release things as He has released them from them. Hallelujah, Jesus. But you don't understand, Pastor. That's all right. I don't need to. He does. He does. He knows. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know how I've been hurt. You don't know the struggles of my life. You don't know the pain. You don't know the broken trust. The Word of God says that He was touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He willingly felt your pain so that He could heal you from it this morning.